1 John chapter 1 also, I want to bring up um, my brother Nate. He's, uh, he, he got the driving from the Patterson side of the family. <laughs> and so I want to thank God that, that he kept his hand on Nathan as well. Nathan had an um, a accident. It was uh, Thursday, Thursday night. And thank God for keeping his hand on Nate. Nate just went beside a tree and there was a light pole on the other side. So we're thankful that God has kept his hand on body believers here and those that we are um, tied in with, with uh, Sister Kayla Trawick. Amen. First John chapter 1. Bear with me here tonight. My All of this... Uh, sickness and I've got uh, double double halls right now with me and, and we're going to make it through and, and God's going to um, speak to us through his word but I want to read first John <coughs> chapter one starting in verse number one I want to read down to verse number seven it says that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and we bear witness, and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard and declare unto you that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you so that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Let's pray. Lord. Your power has been evident from the moment that we've stepped in this room this morning. God, I ask you right now, Lord, that as you have already brought about physical miracles, Lord, that we can point to that you have done with your own hand. God, I pray here tonight, Lord, that you would bring about spiritual miracles. God, I pray, Lord, that you would change hearts. I pray that you would change minds. I pray, God, that your peace, which passes all understanding, God, would come over us, Lord. And most of all, God, these things, Lord, that you have called us to in your word, Lord, let us pay attention to them. Don't let us just be hearers of this thing, God, but let us be doers of your word, that we may grow in Christ-likeness, that we may be a banner of truth in this city for the power of your spirit and the power of your word. And it's your holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. My title here tonight is Pay Attention. No pressure. I want you to turn just a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 2. By way of introduction, I want to take you to this epistle, and, and I want to read the first three verses, <coughs> excuse me, of chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. And just leave your ribbon over in 1 John because you, you know that we'll be going back. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3 says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, 
And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. And how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? My title obviously comes from this passage of Scripture, and take heed doesn't have the same grabbing quality as pay attention. There will be a test. The ESV brings it out. It says we need to pay attention to these things. There's been much debate over the years over who authored the letter to the Hebrews. There's even been some debate within our own fellowship. Was it Paul? Was it Luke? Was it Apollos? I'm not here to settle the debate tonight, but as you read through Hebrews, the first chapter, there's a noticeable pattern that we see in what we started off in 1 John. I'm not trying to tell you that John wrote Hebrews. There's no scholars that are going to back me up on that. I just want you to notice the pattern. Turn back one page, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, <coughs> hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. And look in the the Gospel of John, most of us could quote it here tonight. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And down to verse number 14, that Word was made flesh and it dwelt among us and we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews, 1 John, the Gospel of John, we, we see often in the New Testament epistles and letters that there's this Hey, it's Paul, I'm an apostle, I'm here to speak to you to the church in Corinth, this church in Philippi. Both of these, all three of these that we have read this morning, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. The incarnate God is the beginning theme of the book. 1 John, Hebrews, and the Gospel of John. That's because the life and the work of Jesus Christ is the most important event that has ever occurred in human history. There's nothing else that even comes close. I love history, but Alexander the Great and and Gandhi and, and, and Nero, Napoleon, Martin Luther King, none of these even come close to Jesus Christ. None of them could say that they had the same impact on our lives today. Even our calendar is shaped by the death and life of Jesus Christ. But do we think in our own lives like the writer of Hebrews or like John did in his letters? Is Jesus Christ the first part of our life's verse? Is the opening letters in my life Jesus Christ or is it something else? Hebrews 1 opens up with this declaration. You can just kind of go through quickly. Hebrews 1, declaration to the power of the incarnate God. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the universe. His glory, it knows no bounds. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He purged our sins. He sits in the place of power. He's better than the angels. He has the most excellent name. The angels worship him. His kingdom is eternal. He reigns in righteousness. He hates iniquity. He laid the foundations of the earth. He's eternal. He makes his enemies his footstools. Angels minister to him. And that's just chapter 1. That's just chapter 1. What great incomparable power. 
whenever we were all worshiping here just a moment ago, that's the God we were worshiping. The God who makes his enemies his footstool. The God who the angels minister to him. The God who created the universe. I, I, I get so amazed at that thought that here I am, just a, a random person in Dothan, Alabama in 2022. And God, the creator of the universe, I have a phone. I have prayer. I can just have a direct contact with God at all times. That's incredible. So it's with this in mind that the writer of Hebrews, he begins in chapter 2, and he says that you have got to pay attention to what I just told you. Now notice, he, he doesn't say there in Hebrews 2 and 1, therefore you ought to give the more earnest heed. He says, we must take the more earnest heed. So if this was Paul, if this was Luke, this is some great apostle who is writing this letter to the Hebrews. He's saying, even myself, I've got to pay attention to this. It's vital. It's important. It's for everyone. But what does it mean to give heed? It's King James. What does that mean, to give heed to something? It means to give your mind to it to study it, to, to meditate, to pray over these things. It's the opposite of the word that we find in verse 3, and that's the word neglect. It's the complete opposite of that word, to neglect something, to forget about it, to put it on the back burner, to give heed to something means that we allow our minds to become engaged with that matter. So since the subject, he says, I want you to give earnest heed to the things I've just told you. He's talking about Hebrews 1. He's talking about Jesus Christ. So we have to give ourselves to a biblical understanding of who he is. Not a secularized view, not even a sentimental view, but a biblical view. That's why whenever we go to God in prayer, whenever you go through Hebrews 1 and you start listing off those things of how powerful God is, that's going to change your prayer life. Why? Because my friend is on her way in a helicopter to South Alabama. I don't know if she's going to make it. I don't know if she's going to survive. But I know the God of the universe. I know the God of the universe. It's natural for us to neglect things that, that aren't important. But this is a primary issue in our life. Your decision to heed this or to neglect it, it's going to affect your eternal salvation. It's the understanding of truth that causes that truth to deliver its appropriate effect in our lives. Now, I'm not saying to you that whenever you come in, whenever you experience the new birth, that you understand the nuances of being filled with the Spirit, that you understand the nuances of baptism in Romans 6 and taking on His name. I'm not saying that you understand all those things, but the more that you grow, the more that you learn, the more that you read, the more that the Bible just begins to go over your life, the more you begin to think about, oh, my word. I was six years old, and I went down in that water, and I had the name of Jesus Christ applied to my life. I became an heir. Those things, as I grow spiritually, only give me more strength down the road. The more that we know, the more that we understand, the less chance there is to neglect these things. Why? Because we know they're important. But many of us are unaccustomed to the mental discipline that it takes to truly give ourselves to deep study on a topic. I know that whenever I was in, in anesthesia school and, and I would sit and 
<coughs> Lister Hill Library. They say that the mind can only grasp what the backside can endure. There were times where that my backside was sitting on those chairs for so long at Lister Hill Library, I had to get up and walk around because I just couldn't process any more information. And there's times where that in our culture that we have been so tick-tocked to death that it, if, if I can't get it in 30 seconds, it ain't worth my time. But let me tell you, to be a Christian is to be counter-cultural. Did you hear what Brother Chad preached this morning? Contentment. Okay, you want to go to work tomorrow and find out how many people are content? There aren't very many. I have run across this book by Stephen Gill. It's a, it's a great book. He's a prolific writer, um, young man. He wrote a book on the, the history of the Trinity, and he goes back into Alexander the Great. So on our way vacation, I picked up this podcast. I listened to, to several hours on Alexander the Great and his sinful mother, Olympias. And as I begin to see the, the impact that they had on Israel right before the time of Christ, that Greek Hellenistic view, it began to just seep into their culture. And so what does God do? He's always told them, look, I brought you out. Be ye separate. Be ye holy. Get away from the world. Being a Christian is all about being countercultural. And so if the Israelites had to stand against paganism and had to stand against polytheism and had to stand against idolatry and the list goes on and on, there are things that we as New Testament, early church, late church believers are going to have to be countercultural. And one of these things that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to give ourselves to disciplined study of God's Word. There's no one here tonight that would say, well, Brother Justin, that's not, this isn't really that important. This isn't really something that, that I would want to do or to, to go through. I think really what we struggle with is how to do it. We all want to do it. It's like whenever Grandpa always says, he asks the question, who all here wants to go to heaven? Everybody's hand raises up. We all want to go to heaven the question is, how do I get to heaven? Correct? So we have to ask ourselves, how do I take heed? How do I pay attention for this test that is coming up? There's not a single class that you go to where they throw the textbook down on your table and they say, all right, good luck. See you in nine weeks. Hope this all goes well. So I don't want to just throw this book at you and say, all right, go to town. Take heed. Let's get it. Let's go. And, and not give you some instruction that goes along with With the book comes instruction. With instruction comes learning. With learning comes understanding. And it's understanding that keeps us rooted. Because listen, understanding God's sovereignty, it keeps you during dark and difficult times. A loved one passes away. Someone is, gets cancer. Something bad happens. If you know that God is overall, it gives you strength through that time. Understanding God's holiness, it keeps us away from sin. How can I sin when I serve a holy God? Understanding God's love keeps us during time of loss. Understanding God's provision keeps us during times of scarcity. Understanding heaven keeps us from wanting those temporary things of this world. But taking heed, it goes even beyond just understanding because what does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, I want you to take heed 
excuse me, to the things that we have already heard. These are things you already know. These are things you've heard from birth. This is the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6. These are things that you already know. This is Jesus Christ. So exactly how do we take heed? Let me tell you, three little steps here. Once you understand a doctrine in Scripture, you need to look for its evidence. This is the first place that you're going to find that evidence. But I also want you to look for these things in your own life. Because we can see God's love and how he guided the children of Israel through the wilderness. We can see his compassion whenever the sick and the lame would come to him and he would heal them. We can see that in scripture, but I can also see God's love in my own life. So, whenever the enemy comes to me and he says, God doesn't love you. God's forgotten about you. God is not working in your life. I point to this book and I point to my life and I say, no, God has done a work in my life and you're not going to sway me from these things because I paid attention. I've taken heed and I know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. The next thing that you must do is to consider the importance of that doctrine. When you think about (coughs) the importance of God's love, then it's not going to fall prey to neglect because you see how important it is, how valuable it is. Time after time, we see the Israelites lose sight of God. Why? They had forgotten the importance of what God said about idolatry. They had forgotten the importance of holiness. They had forgotten the importance of consecration. Those things slipped away, and they got into a state of neglect And trust me, in 2022, Satan can find all kinds of things to fill your mind with and get you away. It used to be, you know, (coughs) back in the day they would say, you know, they they designed the shelves at at Bruno's. I remember Bruno's. Y'all remember Bruno's? And they would have the end caps and they would have it just situated to where that you would buy that thing just because they had it there. Now they've got your phone to where they know what you want to look at. They can scroll and you can sit for hours and scroll and watch videos and do all these other things and think, man, where did the time go? Satan can fill your mind with trivial things if you forget the importance of spiritual things. So look at for the evidence. Look for the importance and then look and see how does this apply to my Christian walk. Because all of these steps are important, but none of these are more important than to not apply this to your own life. Because then you're just a little walking Bible trivia machine that can point off, you know, the children of Israel were in the the wilderness for this long, and Moses was, was this age, and I know this, and I know that, but I don't know how it connects back to my own personal walk with God. We've got to know how to connect these things and to apply them to our life. This is taking heed. This is not letting your spiritual man or woman fall into a state of neglect. But is this really important? Is this, as we say, a heaven or hell issue? Is this going to be on the test? Is this just something for the pastor and the bishop and the the lay ministers and the Sunday school teachers and, and the prayer warriors, the intercessors? Is that just for them? No, no. Remember the writer of Hebrews says we ought to give the more earnest heed. But look at what the result is if we do not. We're at risk of slipping away. Slipping away. That's the result. If you do not take heed, you slip away from the truth. 
The word there for slipping away, it, it gives us this picture of a boat who has sailed past a harbor and it's gone past it. It meant to go into that harbor, but it sailed past. There was a storm, there was a current, there was maybe it was just a, a lazy captain, something, I don't know, but it missed the harbor, it slipped away, and now it's in danger of shipwreck. This reminds me of, of 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, holding faith, Paul says to Timothy, and a good conscience which some having put away <coughs> concerning the faith, they have made shipwreck of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now here are two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were once solid members of the church in Ephesus. One of the early Puritans, he said that Alexander was the same man in Acts 19 or 20 who stood up before the crowd and, and preached the gospel in the masses and everybody was going crazy. They were worshiping Diana and this man, Alexander, stood up and preached the gospel. This Alexander has now made shipwreck of his faith. So scripture bears this out that this is indeed a salvation issue. Hear what one of the old Puritan writers had to say about this passage in 1 Timothy. I, I try not to use long quotes, but this one's a little bit lengthy. Hold on with me. He says, Paul first issues a warning to those who make light of God and who trifle with his word. Then he declares that they will sink to the bottom of the sea. They will suffer punishment from God as to lose both reason and understanding. He offers two examples of God's punishment, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had been prominent in the church. He speaks of them, in fact, as men who were not only well-known, but they were held in high regard. But because they had misused the gospel, as so many hypocrites do, God blinded them and they had become a senseless beast. They became defectors who rose up against God. His intention, therefore, is clear. This is Paul's intention. He wants to impress on the mind of all believers who read from Timothy delivering this all the way to us today. He wants this to be on our minds, this warning, that if we do not have a good conscience, faith will be taken away from us and we will be deprived of the grace of the Holy Spirit. This neglect, this getting busy, this not paying attention, not taking heed to spiritual things. It leaves us in a state to where that we can slip away, where that our boat was wanting to go into the harbor, but we slipped away, we got busy, a storm of life came through, and we drifted away. So tonight, let's look back to our text, 1 John chapter 1, and look at three areas of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, so that we can take heed to this doctrine, just as the writer of Hebrews say, take heed to the things that I've just said. What's he talking about? Jesus Christ. Let's look at 1 John and look at, first, the life of Jesus Christ. 1 John, he just straight away, I have already said, that he just begins to speak of the power of the life of Jesus Christ. The purpose of this letter it was to combat pagan heresies that were beginning to creep into the church. They were saying, look, it's all this Greek stuff that had, had, had come sifted through the years from Alexander the Great and all these other things. If you're interested in that, go listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. It's fascinating if you enjoy that kind of stuff. 
But what they said was is that this is God. You're telling me Jesus Christ is God. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. You're telling me that, that God took on human flesh, which is sinful flesh. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Well, they, they couldn't believe that because God in their mind was overly holy, overly pure, so far away, so untouchable, couldn't be touched by, by man. It was, it was unattainable. So they didn't believe Jesus Christ. They didn't believe that he was the God-man. They did not believe that. So John, he doesn't begin by saying, look, these are what the Gnostics are saying. These are what these pagans are saying. He just begins with the truth. What's the greatest way to combat error? It's with the truth. John opens his epistle straight away, points us to the Savior. He doesn't have to introduce himself. He doesn't even necessarily tell his purpose, who he's writing to. He just says, look, I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. I've spent time with him. He's changed my life. Let me tell you about what he's done. This is justified whenever you realize that Jesus Christ is the main theme of the Bible. Yes, there are other great things that we learn from Scripture, but the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. The very first mention that we see, Genesis 3. Brother Chad mentioned that chapter this morning. 3.15, we see the first messianic prophecy. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The very first messianic prophecy, we see the picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do. Genesis chapter 3. Later in that chapter, verse 21, we see God clothes Adam and Eve in animal skins. Obviously, that animal had to die, had to be a sacrifice. We see the first picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do for us. Brother Chad even mentioned one this morning, Proverbs chapter 30, Messianic prophecy. There it is. These prophetical references, they don't stop. They go all the way through the Old Testament. Scholars say that there's over 300 prophecies that have occurred like this. Now, I've spoken about this in my Sunday school class, and I've got all these young single ladies in hyphen class like Hannah, and I'd tell Hannah, I'd say, all right, Hannah, after Sunday school today, you're going to go to Walmart, and you're going to meet a guy, and he's going to be six foot two and a half. He's going to have brown hair and green eyes. He's going to be driving a, a, a Ford F-150 pickup truck. It's going to have two white stripes down the side, and it's going to be four-wheel drive. It's going to have a big old engine, and he's going to be wearing white shoes, and I go on and on and on and on. Now, if Hannah would have gone to Walmart that day and seen that exact thing, I could start my own prophetic ministry. Okay? Listen to this. 300 prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled. You want to have liberal theologians come in and tell me that this is all hogwash, that there's nothing to this? Oh, come on now. 300 over prophecies that we have telling us that Jesus Christ is coming. This is not fables. This is not make-believe. From the creation account to the very end of Revelation, God's Word can stand because it's the truth. It's the truth. The entire Bible points to our Savior. I could break it down like this. The Old Testament foretells the coming of the Messiah. The Gospels, they tell the story of the Messiah. The epistles tell us to live until how the, the Messiah returns. And then Revelation tells us the story of his return. What's the common denominator? It's the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So for John to begin his epistle by 
immediately referencing Jesus Christ, it's no surprise. He is our ultimate standard. He is what we are to live to. Ephesians 1, God said, I saved you to make you holy. We know that Jesus was holy. He's our image bearer. He is the one that, that as we are clothed in his spirit, that we are to be. 1 John 2 and 6, he that say, this is the scariest verse in the Bible to me. He that saith he abideth in him. We all say that we abide in Christ, right? We all say that we're Christians. We ought also to walk even as he walked. That's a high calling. That's the highest of all callings. That calling can only be fulfilled if you have been filled with his spirit. That's sanctification. That's transformation into Christ's likeness. That is what transformed the life of John. Consider John for a moment. James and John. They are the sons of thunder. Sound like mild-mannered guys, right? Sound like two guys from a biker gang is what they sound like. The sons of thunder. That's their nickname. That's what Jesus calls them. And rightfully so, because in Luke chapter 9, the the disciples and Jesus, they go through Samaria. Samaria wants to have nothing to do with them. So what did James and John do? God, bring down fire on these people right now. The sons of thunder. These are angry men. But remember who John turns into. Remember the gospel of John. How does John refer to himself as? the disciple whom Jesus loved. As we get to 1 John and we see his letter, now he is known as the apostle of love. The book of 1 John contains the word love or one of its derivatives over 40 times. This is the son of thunder. This is a man who is given to anger, who wants to drop down hellfire and brimstone on people, and now he's an apostle of love. Okay? So think about, think about yourself. Think about your greatest flaw. Don't say it out loud. The power of coming into contact with Jesus Christ can literally change that one thing in your life that is your greatest flaw, that is your weakest point of your life, and it can turn it into your greatest strength. That is the power of coming into contact with Jesus Christ. That is the power of being filled with His Spirit, is that God can transform a man who was angry, who wanted to harm people, and now he's the apostle of love. The only way to experience transformation like this is to come into contact with God himself, is to pay attention to Jesus Christ, to take heed. John, he makes this clear, overly clear that he was with Jesus. He said, look, I saw him, I heard him, I looked at him, I touched him. He's saying, I had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it was this ongoing interaction that changed John's life. Let me tell you, let me tell you the power of this word. Coming into contact with this word can change your life. It can change your life. This isn't self-help. This isn't pop psychology. This isn't me trying to do behavior modification. This is the power of the word of God. God can change the affections and desires of your heart. The, 
<coughs> the only way to experience this is to put yourself in that position that John did. It's walking with him every day. It's being with him every day. It's touching him. It's seeing him. It's being with him. It's wanting to know him. The Gospels, we, we see in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only time in Scripture where we have the exact same story told four different times. Okay, we have some in the Old Testament, but we didn't. We only heard the story of David and Goliath once. That was a pretty cool story. It would have been neat if we heard it from another angle or from another writer. We, we heard a few stories about some of the Israeli and, and, and kings of Judah. We heard some of their stories maybe twice but we hear the story of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. God is saying, this is important. Dig into this. Know who I am. Know me because it can change your life. We often point to the day of sacrifice at Calvary as the pinnacle of our salvation. But don't forget those 33 years of resisting temptation that made that moment possible. I just turned 33 this year, and I... I, I joked with a few of my friends. I said, well, I've been perfect now for 33 years. I guess I can, you know, kind of let things go. Alyssa would readily attest, and my mother would readily attest to you that that is certainly not the truth. For 33 years, for my entire life, Jesus Christ did not sin one time. Okay, and, and, and Scripture says he was tempted in all like manner as we, but, but think about this. Okay, whenever I'm tempted to do something, it's, it's, it's saying, Justin, I want you to put your ideas and, and your wants and your desires over the things that God wants, right? That's what temptation is. Okay, so I could, you know, get a little promotion at work or something. Think about the temptation that Jesus Christ had. He could have made himself into the greatest of the great. He could have overthrown the Roman government. He could have brought in a legion of angels. He could have been the greatest thing that had ever happened. He could have all the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming in behind him and saying, man, this is a great guy. He's so awesome. He's so powerful. But not one time did Jesus ever succumb to temptation. He lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for you and for me, that thing that we talk about, that imputed righteousness, that righteousness that is given to us on our account so that whenever we stand before God in judgment, he doesn't see the work of Justin Harrelson. He doesn't see the work of Brother Jacory. He sees the work of Jesus Christ. That has been placed on our account. Oh, how great that is. He could have been some great military figure, but instead he humbled himself to a cross. His perfect life gave us the means by which we could have salvation. Only a spotless sacrifice could atone for countless millions. Then 1 John 1 and 5, we've seen the life of Jesus Christ. Now John brings us to the light, the purity, the holiness of Jesus Christ. He declares that the message that they <coughs> have heard from Jesus is that there is no darkness in him at all. He's saying, you are serving a God who is pure light. There is no darkness even associated to his nature. Okay, Notice, he doesn't say God is a light. He doesn't even say that God is the light. He says God is light. It's his nature. And it's just an overflow of John telling us that, look, your faith is God-centered, not man-centered. 
The first step for us to live a holy life is to get our own wants, our own desires out of our mind, push these things out, and think about the holiness of God. Whenever you begin to think about how holy and how pure and how awesome God is, trust me, temptation will come into your life. You say, I don't want to have any part of that. I serve a holy God. Revelation 4, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, we see this. We see this again. It's the only attribute in Scripture we see that it's used repetitively. Even the angels, it's like whenever they are coming in and out of God's presence, in and out of God's presence, it's almost like they're speechless. They don't even know what to say except to say, God, you are holy, holy, holy. If that's the angel's response, think of what our response is going to be. Remember John in Revelation, whenever he did see the exalted, magnified Jesus Christ? Remember what happened? He said, I fell on my feet as dead. Seeing the holiness of God just took him to his feet. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah, we would say he was a holy man. He was a holy prophet. And look at what it did to him. Isaiah 6 and 3, he's confronted with the holiness of God. Isaiah 6 and 5, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in people. When the midst of them that have unclean lips, mine eyes have now seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he sees the holiness of God, what does it do? It's like it puts down a mirror and he says, oh, I've fallen so short. Oh, I need God. I need him in my life. It stimulates a response. Whenever we begin to rely on our own inner goodness is when we fall the hardest. It's our encounter with the holy God that has the greatest potential to change us forever. So that's why Moses said, God, show me your glory. Moses, come on, man. You've already seen the Red Sea. You've already seen the plagues. You've seen this. Miracle after miracle, God, show me your glory. I want you to change my life. John knew this, so he places this at the very forefront of his epistle. The point is clear. Your view of God will have the greatest influence on your Christian walk. That's an A.W. Pink quote. I've used it before. Your view of God will have the greatest influence on your Christian walk. It's going to change how you walk. It's going to change how you talk. You have a low view of God. There's no need to live holy. But if you have a high view of God, trust me, you're going to live a pure and holy life. First Peter, I want you to turn there, and, and Peter gives us the exact same connection. He, he tells us that the, the revelation of the holiness of Jesus Christ, that, that look at what it results in. First Peter chapter 1, in verse number 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now look at what happens. You get this revelation of Jesus Christ. You see God in his holiness. Look at what happens. Verse number 14, you won't be conformed to your former lust. Verse number 15, your speech will be made holy. Verse number 16, you're going to be made into the image of a holy God. Verse number 17, you can pray to God as Father. How powerful was that this morning that we could go to God as our Father who cares for us. If, if he said, excuse me, he said in, 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 the, um, in the Gospels that if, if a good Father, how much more would I give to you gifts? So whenever we went to him this morning in prayer, we weren't just going to him as some impersonal pagan God who can't be touched, who doesn't know what it feels like to have the pain and the affliction of this world. We went to God in prayer as our Father. 
verse number 18 and 19, you begin to understand the magnitude of the cost of your soul at Calvary. A true understanding of the holiness of Jesus Christ keeps your ship anchored into the harbor. There's no slipping. There's no neglect. Why? You've seen a holy God. This is the most important thing in my life. Verses 18 and 19, you understand the magnitude of the cost of your soul at Calvary. And that is now where we go to 1 John 1 and 7. We've looked at the life of Jesus Christ. We've looked at the light of Jesus Christ. Now we look at the death of Jesus Christ. He says there, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The cross, the most beautiful and the most awful sight that humanity has ever beheld. The most unjust and yet lawful execution of justice that's ever been delivered. The song goes, this the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the wrath. Now we stand forgiven at the cross. Brothers and sisters, if we ever take heed of the cross, if we ever pay attention to the cross, what was done on our behalf, if you ever seek out the biblical and even the historical and even the experiential evidence of the cross, if you ever grasp the importance of what happened at Golgotha, if you ever see how it applies to your everyday life, you will never be the same. You will never be the same. How can the enemy of your soul come into you and say, you're not loved? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Jesus Christ took my sin to the cross. He took my shame, my guilt. The song, those were my nails. He took that for me. How can you say I'm not loved? How can you say that there is not a God who loves and cares for me? Those thoughts have no place in our mind. Why? Because the power of the cross, you've got to understand it. You've got to go through the evidence. You've got to see the importance. And you've got to see how it applies to your life. He was the only mediator between God and man. He was the only chance that we had for redemption. He was the only hope for salvation. Here's another theological term. He was the substitutionary atonement of God's grace extended down to mankind. Weston, what's a substitute? You're homeschooled, so I guess you don't really have a substitute anymore, but... It's a fill-in. That's what a substitute is. All right? Atonement. Atonement is making a wrong into a right. So it was someone filling in, making a wrong into a right on my behalf. Substitutionary atonement. That's a theological term, but hey, I bet you Weston knows how to, 
I'm telling you, Weston can look up the comps on a basketball card, and he can get a good deal for you if you ever want to go down to the card shop in Panama City. If Weston can do that on a cell phone, then Weston can know what substitutionary atonement is. I came across this in, in my studies, this 16-year-old back, back in the 15, 16, 1700s. He learned Greek before he had turned 16. He then walked 48 miles to go get a Greek New Testament. He goes into the store. The shopkeeper says, what do you want? He said, sir, I want a Greek New Testament. He said, kid, if you can read Greek, you can have that New Testament. So sure enough, kid, 16 years old, pulls it down off the shelf, reads the Greek New Testament. The shopkeeper says, son, you can have that Greek New Testament. 48 miles walking back. Can you imagine? That's inspirational. That's convicting. If a 16-year-old can learn Greek, why can't I pull out my phone and have all the Greek that can come through and I can begin to learn these things? It just shows that there was a love and a passion in that child's heart and he grew and he began, he had a preaching ministry and God used him. Why? He had a hunger for God. He said, look, there's something about this man, Jesus Christ. There's something about what he did for me on the cross. So I've got to go back. I've got to dig into this. I've got to learn because he can change my life. He can do a work. 48 miles he walked. Jesus came to this earth. His only purpose to be here was to die. His purpose had been set from the dawn of time to be the sacrifice for our sin. There was no bull, no goat, no lamb that could ever atone for the sins, the Bible says, of the world. Only the blood of God manifested in the flesh. Nothing but his death could save us. I want you to see it. I want you to just get a glimpse of it. Why? Because it's going to change you. It's going to change your life so that whenever we sing at Calvary, that song is so full of scripture. That song, every time you sing it, we've sung it thousands of times probably. Every time that that we sing that, you should see those lines as they come across the screen. You say, oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Go back to Luke and think about his account of the the, um, rich man and Lazarus in heaven. And what did the rich man say? I just wanted just a drop of water. And Abraham says, there's a great gulf. It's fixed here. I can't get across. But you're Abraham. You're the father. You're, you're You're the man. You're the beginning of Israel. You are Father Abraham. I can't get across the gulf. It's it's too far. There's nothing that I can do for you. That is the gulf that God did span at Calvary for our souls. If you can get a picture of that, if you can just see that, it'll change your life. It'll change you. It'll change the others around you because you've got to tell them. You've got to tell them. You've got to have the blood applied. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, look, I'm coming to you and I'm preaching Christ and him crucified. I was beginning to think about it. I was like, man, I'm, I'm preaching Gideon and what am I preaching about? I'm preaching about salvation. I'm preaching about the cross. They're going to get tired of it. But it's, it's what Paul said. When I preach, I preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. To those foolish Greek philosophers, it was complete insanity. But to us, it's eternal life. The Jews, they they wanted a deliverer from the Romans. The Greeks, they didn't even understand how in their pagan minds, how that could even work, how God could become man. They didn't even understand it. But here, 
our Lord Jesus Christ embodies the principle of the scapegoat from Leviticus 16. You have that scripture, Brother Clay? Throw that up there for me. Leviticus 16 and 21. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all of their sins, putting those things on the head of the goat. And then what happens? He sends him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness, and the goat shall bear upon him all the iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let the goat go in the wilderness. Sorry, goat. I mean, yesterday everything was going good. You were eating grass and hanging out with your friends and family. Now all the sin of Israel has been put on you, and it's bye-bye out to the wilderness. Here is the God of the universe becoming a wretched scapegoat for our sins. No wonder the Greeks thought it was foolish. No wonder the Jews couldn't wrap their minds around the glory of the crucifixion. But the writer of Hebrews makes this so clear connection to that scapegoat whenever he writes in Hebrews 13 and 12. He says, so Jesus Christ suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You get that? Jesus suffered outside. He was outside. He had the sins placed upon him. He was pushed away so that I might gain entrance into eternal life. If you took just one element of that day, think about these things. Jesus' silence during the trial, that's not natural. What do we want to do? We want to stand up. We want to fight. I didn't do that. That wasn't me. I want to, I want to give an account and tell him, no, I didn't do that. He was silent. The beating that he endured the agonizing walk to Golgotha, those seven sayings on the cross, his extension of grace to the thief beside him. This one always gets me. His compassion for his mother during his greatest time of need and those awful people there who were, what did he say? Don't account this to their account. Are you kidding me? That's not how we are. What do we want? Retribution, pay them back. These rank sinners, here I am dying on a cross potentially for, <coughs> for their own sin. And here they are cursing me and spitting on me. And he says, don't charge this to their account. Oh, the compassion. Think about it. Anything related to that day, just get a glimpse and understanding of what it truly meant to save your soul. And you're never going to be able to sing a song about Calvary the same ever again. It'll change your life. It'll change everything about you, your family life, your social life, your work life, your spiritual life. Every single part of you will be changed if you can just get a glimpse, if you can just pay attention, if you can just take heed, if you can grab that evidence, if you can grab that importance, if you can apply those things to your life. But this doesn't happen unless we work unless we take heed, unless we consecrate ourselves. This doesn't happen if you close your Bible here tonight and it never gets opened again until next Sunday. Take heed. Pay attention. This is eternal salvation. The musicians can come.
This is not a secondary issue. This is not just for <coughs> the super spiritual. This isn't just for the elders. It's not just for the middle age. It's not just for the young marriage. It's not for just hyphen. It's not for our high schools. It's not just for our middle schools. It's not just for our little ones. It's for every single age group in this church. From the youngest to the oldest Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, which I command you this day, they shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently. Teach them diligently unto your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. What are you talking about when you're in your house? When you walk by the way, what are you talking about when you're walking by the way? When you lie down, what are you talking about? And when you rise up, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the Lord our God is one Lord. I'm going to love him with all of my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. He goes on. You need to bind them for a sign upon your hand. They need to be like frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them upon the post of your house and on your gates. You've got to take heed to these things. Why? Because we see all the way throughout Deuteronomy. The one word in Deuteronomy is remember, remember, remember. Why? Because he's saying you're going to go into a land of plenty. You're going to go into fields that you didn't plant, into homes that you didn't build. There is going to be excess. There's going to be a land that's flowing with milk and honey. But you better remember. You better remember what Jesus Christ did for you. You better remember that 33 years of perfect living, of turning aside from the flesh, of, of having a complete, pure, and holy life. And of Calvary, you can stand why does he say that to the children of Israel? It's because they're thick-headed. They were sometimes, but he, he was saying it because they were human. Because we just have a tendency to forget these things. We have a tendency to neglect. We have a tendency to let things slip. And so tonight, that's what I want to call us to, is to remember these things, to take heed of these things. Keep these truths in the forefront of your life. But come on, John. We know who Jesus is. We know the stories. We know about the virgin birth. We've heard about these things all of our life, John. It's Jesus Christ. We know the manger. We know the innkeeper. We know all of this stuff. Come on, John. Give us some new great revelation. Give us some great miracle, sign, and wonder. No, listen to me. You know God and His holiness. You can pray to God as Father. And so whenever we stand this morning and we pray to the holy, pure, true, righteous God, we know that we're connecting to heaven and that God can work and move. Those miracles, signs, and wonders take care of themselves if you pay attention, if you take heed to Jesus Christ. Discipline yourself to godliness and eternity. You will never have one regret. Kids, dig in to Bible quizzing. Asher, dig into Bible quizzing. Learn those verses, buddy. Lila, Chioma, learn them verses. Y'all know. Learn those verses. Why? You're taking heed. You're letting this word that is all-powerful begin to do a great work in your life. Pay attention. There's going to be a test. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for your spirit. I'm so thankful for your provision. 
God, you have done such a great work in our midst here this morning. God, the work, Lord, that you did in Kayla Trawick's life, I once again want to lift up your name and thank you for that. God, for keeping her safe, Lord, for preserving her life. God, you only can do these things, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray here tonight that we could have just gotten a glimpse of your life, a glimpse of your holiness, a glimpse of your death, so that it would whet our appetite to know you, to know you. God, let us have the mind of Christ. Let us put on these things. Lord, draw us closer to you. Draw us nearer. Consecrate us, Lord, for a service to you. God, so that our souls may be preserved, that you may keep us to the end. It's in your precious holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, if you want to come and pray here for just a few minutes here tonight.